Let's go right to the word of the Lord. If you would turn to the book of Mark, chapter 2. We're going to look at something which takes place very early in the ministry of Jesus. Before I read the text in Mark chapter 2, I want to say I just received notification via uh, text message that uh, at least one, I know one family from Houston that was completely, has been completely displaced is in our service this morning and they've lost everything. I don't know where that family is. Uh, I would love to meet you after the service, but please know you have our prayers and our concern along with so many, many others, that that's been the case. But uh, we have at least one family, possibly more, but at least one family with us in the service this morning. We just pray God's grace be upon you as you process through this. Church, can you say amen to that today? All right. Mark chapter 2. With the first, uh, starting at the first verse. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. How many of you have heard this story before? Verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Look at verse 2 again, where it says, soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. So we know that the house was packed, and the Bible says that there were four men carrying in the paralyzed man, and let me make it really simple. We have a full house and four men of faith, but someone once told me that four of a kind always beats a full house. I've never played poker in my life, but I couldn't help but notice that you have a full house and nothing much happening, at least nobody gets healed, But you have four men full of faith that made the dynamic difference and everything changed for that man. And honestly, that's the story. We've read it. That's the story. The story of four men willing to put forth the effort and do their part, fully believing that God would do his part. And it is absolutely a story of faith for us this morning. We learn from the text that Jesus had returned to Capernaum, uh, which had become somewhat of a headquarters for him when you study it. This was not the house of Jesus, it was most likely the house of Peter, and most historians make uh, that assumption due to the fact that just in the previous chapter there's the mentioning of the healing of uh, Peter's mother-in-law, his mother-in-law that took place in that house, and then this follows shortly thereafter, so that assumption is made. But we do know that the house was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. And so when you think about that and let that uh, picture fill your mind, a house packed with people and people outside trying to, trying to get in, here's what we understand. The great resort there was Jesus. He was the attraction. And though Jesus was in the house, whether it belonged to Peter or to whomever, people came to him as soon as it was noised abroad that Jesus was in town. They didn't wait until He would make an appearance in the synagogue, which he probably obviously would have done on the Sabbath. 
but they went straight to where Jesus was. When I was thinking through this and reading through this this week, it reminded me of something that the way that Pastor Dez used to identify someone with leadership ability. He said this many, many times throughout the years, typically in one of our staff meetings, but he would, you know, to know if someone is truly a leader, you need only to look and see if anyone is following them. Many people think they are a leader or they want to declare that they have leadership skills, but then you find out when you look behind them, no one's following them. If someone is a leader, then it will be true of them that someone is following them. But, but then what Des, when Des would spot someone he thought truly had leadership ability, I heard him say this so many times, I'm even recalling in my mind at this moment people of whom he said this, he would almost always refer to them as, he would say something like this, Don, you know, he's a real Pied Piper. That's the way he would refer to it. And what he was basically saying was someone who has a, a, a natural attraction about them, someone that people want to follow their, their leadership, someone who just attracts the people. And clearly, we can say that of Jesus in seeing the situation when he came to this house. Jesus clearly was a Pied Piper of sorts because the people could not wait to be where he was. They could not even wait until the Sabbath when he would have obviously made the, the appearance there in the synagogue. They wanted to be where he was. For hear me, church, where the king is, there is the court. Some of you get that this afternoon. Where the king is, there is the court. And to you Old Testament connoisseurs, where Shiloh is, there shall the gathering of the people be. Obviously, the crowd had gathered by the power of what we call word of mouth. How many know what I mean when I say word of mouth? Surely everybody does. Sometimes, Bethesda, uh, I wonder if we effectively use that tool or if maybe it could be said of us that we could be more effective in using that tool. I had a friend one time make a statement to me that I wasn't sure where it came from or exactly how he had arrived at this, but he said this. He said, you know, Dan... Bethesda is the best-kept secret in the whole of the Metroplex. And I thought, oh, I didn't know we were keeping it a secret. But the fact is, he said, it's amazing to me how the place isn't absolutely flooding with 10 services a day because with the music that you have there and all that takes place in the worship, he says, it's the best-kept secret in the Metroplex. And I guess uh, his conclusion was, you know what's happening? The people of Bethesda are not inviting people to church. And I said, well, some people are. I know they are because they tell me. But let me just give you this little gentle, loving, pastoral um, kick in the sea of the pants this morning, okay? I was trying to say that another way, and it just kind of came out like that. When was the last time you invited someone to church? When was the last time? When was the last time you told someone else why you chose Bethesda as your church? When was the last time that you offered to pick someone up and, and bring them or possibly to meet them here at church and take them to lunch afterwards? We can advertise, the church could advertise all we want, but the fact remains that true growth in a place like this happens when the people, the, in the fellowship, when the people are aggressive, not only in sharing our faith about Jesus, but aggressive in inviting the lost to come and experience Jesus in a worship service here at Bethesda. And this would be a great time for you to say amen. One more? Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. So here's Jesus in this crowded home. The Bible says, we just read it, that he was preaching or speaking the word to them. But due to the crowd, this paralyzed man, and you know the story well, he would have never made it into the house 
and made it in the house to Jesus had it not been for four faith-filled men. Verse 3 says, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. Now, I understand that this means that they could not physically get the man to Jesus. We, we get that. That's the obvious thing that's there. Or they couldn't break through the barriers of, because the people were so packed around the door, and possibly the door was even too narrow to get the man through in, in the mat. They couldn't, they couldn't make that happen. But I couldn't help but wonder if this same idea and this same principle doesn't apply to us somewhat here even today in, in a greater way. I just wonder, how many, how many people miss Jesus because of us? I wonder how, if that happens. This man missed Jesus because of the crowd, because they were so pressed in and taken away with Jesus this man who needed him so desperately, he missed him because, because of the crowd. I wonder how many people miss Jesus because of you and me. How many people miss Jesus because of our lifestyle? How many people miss Jesus because of the way we act or the way we speak in public or the way we conduct ourselves in the grocery store? One of the main themes you'll run into in Peter's writings in 1 Peter has to do with our actions and reactions to the Gentile world or what you and I today would refer to as the unbelieving world. Peter focuses our attention on the power of evangelism just in our behavior toward people. Some people think, well, I'm not really witnessing unless I've got the four spiritual laws and a little pamphlet in my hand and I am being very clear to leave. That's witnessing. Witnessing is also the way you live your life in front of your world. How many people miss Christ because of us? It was Gandhi who said, I like your Christ. I just don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike Christ. God help us if anyone ever misses knowing Jesus because of us. And yet, here are these four faith-filled men willing to get this paralytic to Christ. There's a statement that I've mentioned before to you, and you've probably heard it in other places, but it so very much applies to this passage. Listen to me this morning. It's this. Show me your friends, and I will show you your future. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. Who you hang out with determines where you will go and determines how you will end up, which is why there's an obvious direction for this this morning, church. Parents, don't ever treat lightly the friendships that your child has. Don't ever treat that lightly. In their early developmental years, your children look to you you're their example. They look to you for everything. But those of you, like Becky and I, who've navigated your way through those teen years, you will help me confirm this morning that the time undoubtedly and surely comes when the influence moves from you, the parent, to their peers. Am I telling you the truth? It just happens. Whether you like it or not, it happens at different stages, but I will never forget the day when I was driving my daughter to middle school, and we were almost there about two blocks away, and she said, Dad, just stop and let me off here. I'll walk the rest of the way. Why? Well, because people will see you. 
And so then I remember once we realized that, you know, that was an issue that, you know, that no junior high kid wants their parents to be seen. I guess they want people to think they have parents or whatever. I remember the day that something was happening with one of our children and and Becky made the threat to them, if you don't do this or if you do that or whatever it was, she said, I will drive you to school with my robe and slippers on, curlers in my hair and cold cream on my face. (laughs) You wouldn't. Oh, yes, I would. Now, it's been years since I've seen Becky in, in uh, curlers and cold cream, but she's so naturally beautiful, she doesn't need all of that. <laughs> By the way, she has a birthday this week. Happy birthday, Becky. <laughs> so what happens to our kids? <clears throat> the influence changes from us changes to other students in the class, athletes, cheerleaders. The diligent parent will keep a very close eye, a very close eye on those relationships as they form. And if the paralytic man in our text this morning is just part of the crowd, or he's just around the house, then guess what? He does not get healed. But when he's connected somehow, and we don't know how, the text doesn't tell us how, when he's connected with four men who were full of faith, and they had the faith to believe that one way or another they would get this man to Jesus, and because they believed that Jesus had the power to heal them. And the important question to you and me this morning is this, are you connected to someone who can get you through to Jesus? You may have friends who can get you to a a ball game, friends who can get you to the golf course, get you to the airport, the shopping mall, the restaurant, wherever. But who is there in your life who can get you through to Jesus? That's important in your life. It's important in my life. It's important in our, our children's life. It is extremely important for all of us. And here's why. It's way too easy to be with the wrong people And the wrong people in your life will have a much easier time pulling you down than you will pulling them up. How many know I'm telling you the truth today? Pastor Brent, come stand right down here. Right there. Give me your hand. Now, which is going to be easier, for me to pull him up or for him to pull me down? Okay, I can try to do this. Resist just a little bit. I can do this all I want. But what's going to happen? If he tries to pull me down, what's going to be easier? He's going he's to have a much easier, try just real easy. Make it look good, though. Okay. He's going to have, okay, that's enough. Thank you. <clears throat> Give Pastor Brent a hand for the illustration this morning. But the principle is the same. Because see, there was Pastor Brent in that lower place. He's a heathen. He's going to hell. He's in that low place. And he's trying to pull me down. And it's much easier for him to pull me down than it is for me to pull him up. Now, I know the gravity and inertia and all that stuff becomes a part of this. But the principle is still the same spiritually. Help me, Lord Jesus. Help me, help me, help me. Let me just remind you of this. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that bad company corrupts good character. 
Bad company corrupts good character. It's important who you hang with. That's why one of the most misquoted verses, half verses in the entire New Testament is this. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5.16b. It's the last half of the verse. But the first half of that verse says this. Confess your faults one to another that you might be healed. We leave that part off. We think it's a, we think it's a verse about a prayer meeting. The effectual fervent prayer of a right. But we leave off the part that says this. He's not telling us how just to get a hold of someone just to have a, a prayer meeting, which is a fine thing to do. He's reminding us that we must be connected with people with whom we can confess our faults, that we might be healed. Someone that knows how to get us to God. When we confess our faults one to, to another, when we say what our needs are, we can express all of that. Then the last half of the verse comes into play that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You and I need to be connected to people who know how to pray. Not just some boyfriend or some girlfriend who may have ulterior motives for their relationship with you. You need to be confessing your faults to someone who knows how to reach God because it is true that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Does this mean I can't ever talk to someone who's not a Christian? Of course not. doesn't mean that. There's a big difference, church, between fellowship and ministry. They're not the same thing. What does the Bible say? It says, what, what, uh, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Fellowship means to have in common with. So when I'm in fellowship, I'm connected with those who, like me, have a love and passion for Jesus Christ. But I also have contact with unsaved people. Some of my neighbors, some of the musicians I've worked with over the years, that's where I've uh, come in contact with people outside the church world, many of the the musicians. But when I'm with the lost or those who are unbelievers, it changes from fellowship to ministry. And it changes our approach entirely. And we should then be looking for opportunity to share the gospel with them, asking the Holy Spirit for the right words and the right timing, assuming words are even necessary. Even understanding that we are, again, like I said, we are examples by the very way we live our lives. Something happened to Becky and I this week that was uh, totally surprising. We moved into a new neighborhood, and one of our neighbors told us, rather shockingly, said, you know what, Uh, because of you guys, I now have a relationship with my father. And I'm telling you, we did nothing, nothing, nothing. Just been a Christian neighbor. Speak nice, joke, laugh, share with them what we can, participate in a couple things that they've invited us to, and said, because, because of you. And what I finally understood is because we simply were living the life of Jesus. Now, you and I both know it was not Dan and Becky. It was Jesus who lives inside of us. Honestly, we did nothing special. We just loved them and cared for them and were nice to them. And we did what we believed Jesus would do. That's what witnessing is all about. And when that neighbor who actually has at times been a bit hardened was able to say to me through tears, it's because of you. I said, no, let me tell you something. It's not because of me. It's because of Jesus. Can I get an amen to that today? Understanding the difference between fellowship and ministry is very crucial to the healthy Christian. So these four men about to bring the paralytic before Jesus. 
Church, there are just those times. Please hear me today. As the Bible says in Galatians 6.2, where we are to bear one another's burdens. The Bible tells us to do that. And what we have in our Mark 2 text this morning is a house full of Bible listeners, but only four men who are willing to carry the stretcher. A house full of people who wanted to hear what Jesus had to say, but four men who had the faith to believe that God could really do something. Bethesda, I must remind all of us here today the value of and the importance of bearing your brother's burden, bearing your sister's burden. Can I just tell you, that is exactly what we do on Sunday evening in the prayer service. We ask you to bear someone else's burden. We ask you to take the prayer card that you're handed when you walk in and at the designated time. Lift that need before the Lord. Lift someone else's need up before the Lord Jesus. I think, honestly, we should think of those prayer cards as as a paralytic stretcher, if you will, as we bring those needs before a miracle-working Jesus to see what he can do in their situation. And then when these men realized that they were not going to be able to get the man through the crowd and through the door, they did something. When it appeared as though the opportunity to get the man in the house was shut to them, they decided they would take it to a higher place. Now somebody, I don't know who, somebody needs to get that. When the door looks shut to you, it's time for you to take it to a higher place. I understand what shut doors look like, and it does not feel good. I don't always respond wonderfully well when the door is shut in my face. I know what happens when it looks like opportunity is lost something you've worked for, something you've cried for, something you've prayed for, you believed in, and absolutely the door just slams shut in your face. And I'm here to say to those of you with the the faith of a grain of mustard seed in you today, which is not much, if the door has slammed in your face, it is time for you to exercise that faith God has given you and take it to a higher place. In Jesus' name. They basically determined that just because they couldn't get this man to Jesus, and through that door, it does not mean we can't get this man to Jesus. Never has the phrase been more appropriate, where there's a will, there's a way. These guys took that to the max. They didn't quit when they saw the full house. They didn't conclude that this venture was now impossible. Well, look at this. We drove up, and, and, you know, just like I drove up one night to the gas station this week, having no idea what we're going to face, and the line was around the circle and around the thing. How many of you all faced that situation, trying to get gas this week? Well, I was ready to just quit and go home. But you can't do that. They didn't conclude when they walked up and saw the house full of people. They didn't conclude that the venture was impossible and say we're going home. No, they said we're going to find a way. I'm saying this morning, thank God for people who are willing to find a way. Thank God for people who are willing to speak in tones of faith. If you're like me, you've got plenty of naysayers that are around, plenty of Job's comforters who can tell you why it can't be and why it can't happen and why that's ridiculous and why you shouldn't think that way and why this possibly can't be. Dan, you're crazy to think. i got plenty of voices like that all around me all the time. I am so grateful that there are men and women in my life who when they speak, there's just a tone. It just rings of faith when they say it. Here's what God can do. Here's what's possible when we believe in Jesus. Here's what can happen in the mighty name of Jesus. Speak in tones of faith. Thank God for people who are willing to speak of what can be and not what just seems impossible. 
And so like many Palestinian dwellings, this house probably had an outside stairway leading up to a flat roof. And so the men carried the paralytic onto the roof. And after digging through it, and a little bit of research will tell you that it was a composite of grass and clay and clay tiles and something called laths, L-A-T-H, a little wooden strip, some composite of that. They made an opening right above Jesus. Now go with me into this moment. Come on, put yourself mentally with me in this moment. The place packed with people. Can't even move in the place. The place packed outside, people gathering everywhere, just listening to Jesus speak. And these men find a way. See them in your mind, carrying that man on that stretcher up those little, that little staircase, trying to navigate their way up there. And then they lowered the paralyzed man right before him, right before Jesus, probably using fishing ropes that lay at hand. And these three thoughts came to my mind just yesterday. What divine ingenuity, what divine resourcefulness, what divine determination. That's probably a sermon outline for somebody sometime. Divine ingenuity, divine resourcefulness, divine determination. That was an expression of faith. And that's what Jesus saw. That's what the Scripture told us that we read. He saw faith. He didn't see the busted up roof. He saw faith, so says our text And there's a critical point for us here this morning today, church. I want you to get this. If you missed everything else I said, please get this. There certainly are those times that we have record of in the New Testament where Jesus looked upon someone like the woman with the issue of blood, and he said this, your faith has made you whole. That is certainly clear and evident all throughout the New Testament. But this situation with the four men carrying up the paralytic man This is one of those rare times where it was not the sick man who had the faith. But the ones who had the faith were the four men who carried him. They're the ones who had the faith for him. What must that moment have been like? For the Bible says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Oh my goodness. Imagine, are you in that moment with me? They're hearing the Word of God from the very one who was and is and ever shall be the Word of God. No wonder their faith could be buoyed in that situation. Faith had to be rising in those four men as they were hearing the Word of God from the very Word of God. And the way faith expressed itself was to say this, We can't get to that door. We can't get through that door. But we are not going to stop until we find a way to get this man to Jesus. That's how faith was expressed that day. And as they carried him up the side of the house, with the struggle of each step, and I can imagine, it's probably not easy. I'm assuming the staircase was probably narrow. and One on this side and this side, over here on all four corners, trying to get the man up there. And they, were, and they were exerting all the care that they could to be sure they didn't drop the man or create some problem. Surely there had to be a flash of doubt. Don't you think? Are we, are we doing the right thing? Is this, like, totally crazy? What, what if, what, what, what if uh, what, 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 all the what ifs? And haven't you asked those same questions in your life? I have. Should I have sold? Should we have moved? Should I have taken this job? Should I, have, should I have even come here? Should I have volunteered? How is this whole thing going to turn out? And somehow, I'm quite sure 
If those men were human, we have every reason to believe they were, carrying the man up the stairs while digging out the roof, there had to be flashes of doubt. And frankly, and I want you to hear this all the way through, frankly, I think it goes like this. To me, doubt is all part of the faith process. Hmm. Now, I, I know the scriptures you're thinking. But you know what? My experience in life means that I've had to learn how to trust over and over and over and over again. Do I know what it is to face doubt? You bet I know what it is to face doubt. But every mature, stable, seasoned Christian that I've ever known had to know what it was to face doubt. Struggling through your doubt is all part of the faith process. Now we must remember that it was the Lord Jesus who instructed us both in the book of Matthew 21, Mark 11, that we were to have faith and not doubt. I know that. That's what the scripture says. But it, it was, it's odd to me, why did he have to mention that? He had to mention that because he knows that we are but dust. He knows our frame. He knows our full propensity to doubt. But the moment must come, church, where we allow our doubts to surrender to faith. Where are you today in that process? Have you walked in the door today full of uh, questions and doubts? Okay, I've been there. Everybody in the room has. But I'm here to tell you today, we have exalted a Christ today. We have sung about one today with who, for whom nothing is impossible. We have sung about one, we have worshiped one here today that we know he can do all things and do all things well. Therefore, the moment must come with all of the doubts that you have in your mind. And I'm not trying to mess with your head today. I'm saying that a believer in Jesus who has surrendered themselves to his lordship will come to the point where those doubts must surrender to faith. And that may be true for you today. And on the top of this first century Palestinian roof, removing branches, digging through the mud, taking off the clay, the clay tiles. I'm sure one of the guys says, do we know if they have insurance here in this place? Hmm. Who said this was a good idea? You know, this could go all wrong. And now they've dug their way through. And now they're looking down. <laughs> and all these people are looking up. You're trying not to feel crazy for looking down while they're looking up. And that moment arrives where doubt and faith go in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I'm looking in the faces of people today that I know you know what it is for doubt and faith to go in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You know what that's like. But this is the moment where you're going, I don't know about this. I don't know who thought this was a bright idea. But it's almost as if I can hear in that moment, I'm living that moment right now. It's almost as if I can hear one of them say, as they've removed those parts of the roof and people are looking up at them and there stands Jesus below and he's teaching the word of God. And one of the guys says, come on guys, let's do it. Can I just tell you, it sounds an awful lot like something I've often heard echoing off the walls of this room. Come on, Bethesda, let's do it. Who's heard that before in this room today? And they take the man and they lower him down. 
And then here comes the twist in the whole story. And I will close with this. We've had to pack a lot in the service. Give me five more minutes. Here comes a twist in the story. Go with me now to the inside of the house. Dirt's falling from the ceiling to the floor. People start shuffling about. The disruption's becoming more and more intense. It's as if, as the historians say, if this truly is Peter's home, what must he be thinking? What's going on? What's happened to his house? The man is lowered, and Jesus looks at him, and he says this. Verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, what? He said, my child, your sins are forgiven. My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'm the paralyzed man, here's what I'm thinking. That's not what I came here for. My idea was that you would touch me and I would be healed and I would walk out of here. So, uh, my, my sins are forgiven. Do you, do you understand what we, these guys went through to get here? And you're giving me the forgiveness thing? I wanted the walk thing. I think I would have quickly become discouraged if I'd been that man. Thinking... Uh, this is, not, this is not how we thought this was going to play out. How, how, how do we get to this point? Now, here's the thing. You and I know that that's what stirred up and shook up all the religious leaders when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. I got them all. If you know the rest of the story, you know that that's there. If you don't, you should read it this afternoon. Now, eventually, Jesus tells the paralyzed man to pick up his mat and, and to walk. But why, Bethesda, why would Jesus start with the forgiveness thing. Why? Why would he do that? I wonder how the men who were so full of faith reacted. I would have expected Jesus to say, I wouldn't have expected him to say that. My expectations of Jesus wouldn't have been for him to say, child, your sins are forgiven. And you understand, church, we have to be very careful. Sometimes our familiarity with the story, when we've read it over and over, it can cause us to lose the full impact of the emotion that had to be going on. Live in that moment before you know what happens later. You and I know what Jesus is going to eventually say and do. But in that moment, they didn't know that. And here's what we need to remember. Jesus was trying to show them and today trying to show you and me one thing, and it's this. When you get Jesus, you don't just get to pick and choose what you want from Jesus. He's not a buffet. I'll take healing. Yes, I, like, I think that sounds good. You know, I like that Sermon on the Mount, except the hell part. Let's leave that off. I'm going to leave that. I like the, um, I like the love your neighbor part, as, as long as they're nice to me. I, I, let's, let's take that. Tithing? Nope, let's leave the tithing thing completely out. I'm not going to do that. Come on, folks. That's not the way this works. That's not the way Jesus is. Let me say it to you this way. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And Jesus says, you want healing? Great. You also get forgiveness. You can't just take what you want for yourself without him working in the whole of who you are, the total person. 
Because that's what Jesus has come to do. If you want Jesus, you get the whole package, the whole bundle. I think Jesus was also letting it be known in that moment because there was other people doing other things. He was not just doing tricks, making the lame to walk or casting out demons. He was declaring in that statement who he is. He is eternally the Son of God and he's the Son of Man and he alone has the authority to forgive sins because only God can do that. He was not declaring his identity by the healing. He wanted to declare his identity by his ability to forgive sins because that belongs to God and God alone. And Jesus essentially said, if you want me, then you want God. And if you want God, then you get all of who he is. It's not just a line you go pick and choose. Just like the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Because you get the whole package. He forgives all of your iniquities. He heals all of your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You don't just get one thing. You get all of who he is. Somebody say, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. To come to Jesus is not just to get free of your stuff. In fact, when you come to Jesus, you get a whole lot more than you planned on. You thought you were just getting healing, but you're getting a whole lot more. You're getting a savior, you're getting a king, you're getting a lord, you're getting a redeemer, you're getting a healer, you're getting a deliverer, you're getting a provider, you're getting peace, you're getting sustenance, you're getting everything that he has. Brent, come and get me out of this, please, I gotta quit. Jesus wasn't just taking that man's paralysis. No, he was taking that man's bad stuff, his good stuff, and everything there is about him. Because you know what, church? Listen to me. Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of you. So it's come to Jesus, give him everything that you are, and in return, he'll give you all of who he is, and you'll have eternal life. Jesus fixes the whole man, but he starts from the inside out, and he starts with forgiveness. Bow your heads in prayer with me this morning.